Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. I remember one day when I was about 25 years old, I was talking with a friend and she mentioned the Equal Rights Amendment. And I said something like, yeah, yeah, of course, it's so important. And I think from my response, my friend could tell I had really only vaguely heard of it. And so she said, you know, it didn't pass. You know that, right? She told me that the Equal Rights Amendment was up for ratification in the 1970s, but it didn't pass. And to my horror, she then told me that the ERA hadn't passed, at least in part because of the leadership of a group of Christian women, and that our own church had been instrumental in it not passing. I felt so betrayed. I remember Literally, I remember where I was sitting, what I was wearing, and I couldn't make sense of it. Looking back, it's kind of embarrassing for me to admit that at age 25, I didn't know the Equal Rights Amendment wasn't already a part of the Constitution. But apparently, I'm not alone. Many, many Americans to this day have heard of the Equal Rights Amendment, but they think that like other amendments, like the 19th Amendment, for example, it was up for ratification and there was a big battle to pass it, but that eventually it passed. They don't know that many states still won't ratify it and that they may live in a state or belong to a church or organization that opposes it. So this is an incredibly important essential text that we're covering today. It's really short, but it has a long history that is still unfolding as we speak. And I'm really grateful to have two experts here to clear up misinformation and help us understand this critical piece of legislation. My reading partners today are Emily Bell McCormick and Kelly Whited-Jones, co-chairs of Utah ERA Coalition. They represent a coalition of individuals as well as local and national groups that have been working on the Equal Rights Amendment for decades. Their mission is to educate elevate the role of women, and to ratify in Utah. So I am thrilled to welcome you today, Emily and Kelly. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for We're so excited to be here. So to start out, could you um, each tell us just a bit about yourselves, Um, just where you're from, and just a little bit about how you grew up and kind of the perspective that you bring to the text? Yeah, absolutely. This is Emily, and I was um, born and raised in a suburb of Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, I have, uh, you know, my nuclear family when I was raised was a mother and father, one sister and two brothers, and um, kind of this funny family where my mother was very artistic and creative, and her father was a musician, a pianist, you know, at the uni- and, and a professor at the university, and um, my dad came from a family who I love to call them just like a cowboy family from Wyoming. Legit. They were true cowboys, you know, um, owned, took care of a dude ranch there. And so just um, kind of a funny combo. I always wonder how those two came together, but kind of a great way to be raised. Um, and when my mother was, she was like 36, I think. Um, and I was 10 years old. She was diagnosed with a brain tumor and became bedridden and kind of chronically ill and stayed in bed until I was about 19. So um, she, you know, really changed during that time. And so I kind of took on a little bit of the caretaking role in my family. I was the second oldest. Um, But I remember my mom when she was in full health. And one of my early memories is laying in bed with her. And we'd gotten a book from the library about Joan of Arc. And she is a 
superhero for me. And I remember reading it. I, we grew up in a religious family and, and reading that and thinking, yes, I mean, you've got Joan, who's like a teenager out leading an army. And I just loved that. So that was kind of one of these um, big memories I had about my mom. Um, I, I went on after, you know, growing up at home, I went on to BYU, Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, where I majored in communication. I really was obsessed with political science and those kinds of um, really just politics and policy and these kinds of things. But I kept thinking there are no real jobs in politics or policy. That's because I just grew up in a family that had no idea. You know, we were not exposed to politics, policy. We didn't talk about it. We didn't think about it. It was like not a conversation at the dinner table. But um, but I, I loved it. I had a great experience there. I got married after that um, and then went to grad school at the Ohio State University and also did um, communication there. And then worked in public relations and marketing and, um, and had my first child. After doing that, I started a, an apparel company called Shabby Apple, um, which was just a dress company, kind of an early online um, dress company. Um, and that was a great experience. Went on to have two more children and we moved from Columbus, Ohio to Richmond, Virginia. And I continued to run this business. And then from there, we moved to a suburb of DC. Um, we had two more children. Um, I ended up selling Shabby Apple and going into consulting work and worked mostly in communication, strategic communication consulting. And then after that, we moved back to Utah, where we were both from, and ended up adopting two children at once, which is a crazy story and has been a crazy ride. <laughs> Not biological um, twins, but they're a month apart. And that was crazy. After, after that point in time, I kind of had this midlife awakening where I realized that I loved, I'd worked with a few other fashion companies and done a lot of strategic communication consulting and realized that um, something that had not at me for such a long time, just policy specifically, um, needed to take on more of a role, a primary role in my life. And it was triggered by this experience that I had going to a, a museum in South Africa, the Apartheid Museum, and walking into this museum and seeing this huge wall and on this massive wall in the middle of the museum that just kind of blended into everything else in that museum, there were all these tiny little plaques. And once I got up closer, I realized these plaques were all these policies or laws that had been set in place in South Africa to create the system of apartheid. And when I saw it and I saw there were just these teeny things and individually, they really didn't have any consequence. They weren't really big. They weren't that big of a deal, but together they created this massively oppressive system. It was kind of a revelation to me that this was, this is, this is the way that governments become what they are. You know, the good parts, the bad parts of society are kind of born out of these individual policies. Um, and at that point in time, I decided to start a, a group called the Policy Project um, that would just kind of look at these individual policies specific to women, because that's just my natural interest, but women and um, minorities and, and, and other things, family um, policy, and make sure that we had strong policies where we were. And that's how I became um, involved in, in uh, the Equal Rights Amendment as well. Amazing. Thank you so much, Emily. 
Um, Kelly, can you share a little bit about yourself and your background? You bet. You bet. I grew up in in Orem, Utah, which is a pretty conservative area of our state. Um, I'm the youngest of eight children. My sister's the oldest. There are six boys, and then I'm at the end. So we uh, we grew up in an urban area, but we actually lived on a small farm. And I kind of an odd fact is we grew up without television. My dad was a professor of electronics technology, so that was his area of study. And he read a, an interesting book called The Wasteland that convinced him that screens were going to take over our lives. And so I was really raised to read a lot, <laughs> to spend time outside, um, and not not to watch screens. So that's just kind of a fun fact. Um, even though I was in a, an, a conservative area, I asked a lot of questions <laughs> in, in our young women's group, which in our religious community is where young women gather together and learn every week. Um, I asked a lot of the awkward questions growing up, but I felt pretty alone in those questions. Um, didn't realize that I was a feminist until later in life and that there might be others like me. <laughs> um, I did attend a lot of fathers and sons campouts with six older brothers, and I begged my parents to let me wear pants to primary. And I had this amazing, it was the 70s, so I had this amazing rust-colored um, suit basically. <laughs> and they let me, they let me do it once. I think you only have to do that once before you realize you stand out. Um, originally I'm from pi a polygamist pioneer stock way back generations. Um, Edwin Dilworth Woolley was the right-hand man of Brigham Young. And, um, his second wife was my relative. And so I do descend from polygamy. Um, and the president, one of the prophets of our church, president Spencer W. Kimball is my grandfather's cousin. So one fun note is that we would have woolly family reunions and the prophet would come and all of the children would kind of line up and could go up and, and sit on his lap or shake his hand. And so, um, so we grew up kind of on my mom's side of the family as being a little bit of Mormon royalty in some ways, um, and but had a very um, connected history to how our state was formed. Both of my parents are educators. So my mom was a poet and she taught elementary school. Um, interestingly, she taught until she got pregnant with my sister and then was forced to, to quit, which was common back back then. Um, and my father, he was a professor at BYU, as I mentioned, and uh, taught there for 20 years. And they both were attended the University of Utah. And actually, when I um, finished high school down there, I, I came up to the University of Utah on a theater scholarship and ended up graduating with a bachelor's in speech communications, so, which is essentially strategic communication and a master's later in environmental and health communication. I worked um, at, for the University of Utah's Central Development Office in fundraising. I worked specifically in corporate and foundation giving and planned giving, but I started in publications and PR, and writing has always been my passion. I have three great kids, Donovan, Riley, and Gabrielle. My husband's favorite pandemic mask is his ERA mask. 
And my family would really like me to get this ratified so that we could all stop talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) I teach college communication now. I'm a professor um, of communication and I teach at the University of Utah and also at Salt Lake Community College. And particularly in the areas of interpersonal, intercultural, and dialogue and conflict studies. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kelly. Fantastic. So I also like to ask my reading partners about the phrase breaking down patriarchy and what that means to them. So just really quickly, Emily, first maybe, and then Kelly, just tell me a little bit about what that phrase means to you. You know, I, I love I love this idea of breaking down patriarchy in the sense of understanding, understanding what is patriarchy, where did it come from, um, and, and actually the root causes. I've loved this podcast so far just because, you know, it really takes something from the beginning of time and says, all right, how, where did this come from? This wasn't, you know, I, I, in necessarily the grand scheme, it came from something. It came from everyday steps. It came from different ways people related in different cultures. And then when we came together, what belief systems were held at the time. And for me, when I have an understanding of um, the history or background of something, it's so much more digestible. Um, and, and I'm able to also see where does this go from here? Like, where does this need to head? And clearly for me, that's tied into this um, this constitutional amendment, right? The idea that we need this equality amendment. Um, but I do, I, I love that idea of just of gaining that understanding so that we can move forward in, in thoughtful ways. Because I think actually a lot of patriarchy came not from thought and intention, but from day-to-day actions, you know, necessities and kind of taking care of what happens in nature with families and, and, and things like that. So um, I, I just love this idea generally. So we know that patriarchy prioritizes and values men over women. So removing that power over dynamic is, is really what I'm after. And, and what, I th- when I, what I think of when I hear that term. And really, it's about seeking partnership. And I think that's a necessary shift that we have to make. In relation to the ERA, for me, it's recognizing that after 98 years, women are still waiting to be constitutionally protected in our founding document, while men have really enjoyed that privilege since the document was written. It's Abigail Adams entreating John Adams to remember the ladies as he headed off to the Constitutional Convention. And John well, not remembering the ladies. (laughs) It's pretty sobering in some ways to realize that women were intentionally excluded from the Constitution, but we can fix that. Thank you so much, ladies. Um, So the last step before we actually dig into the Equal Rights Amendment is to learn a little bit about the author. And the author of the Equal Rights Amendment was Alice Paul. So I'll take this part and just introduce us to who this woman was. Alice Stokes Paul was born on January 11th, 1885. She was a descendant of William Penn, who was the Quaker founder of Pennsylvania, She grew up in the Quaker tradition of public service, and she first learned about women's suffrage from her mother, who was a suffragette and would sometimes bring her along to suffragist meetings. In 1901, Alice Paul went to Swarthmore College, and she graduated with a bachelor's degree in biology in 1905. 
She then earned a Master of Arts from the University of Pennsylvania in 1907 after completing coursework in political science, sociology, and economics. She then went to Birmingham, England to, to continue her studies and took economics classes from, at the University of Birmingham while earning money doing social work. She first heard Christabel Pankhurst speak while she was at Birmingham, and when she later moved to London to study sociology and economics at the London School of Economics, she joined the militant suffragist group, the Women's Social and Political Union, led by this woman, Christabel, and her famous suffragist mother, Emmeline Pankhurst. So Paul joined the movement in London, and she was arrested repeatedly during suffrage demonstrations, and she served three jail terms. And I have to share just a couple of these stories because they're just so interesting. So on one occasion, Alice Paul and other local suffragists made plans to protest a speech by the Minister of Foreign Affairs. His name was Sir Edward Gray. So for a week prior to this speech that was planned, they spoke with people on the streets to promote knowledge about why they were protesting the cabinet member. And then at the meeting, um, after this man, Sir Edward Gray, after he discussed this proposed legislation that he claimed would lead to prosperity, Alice Paul stood up and exclaimed, quote, well, these are very wonderful ideals, but couldn't you extend them to women? End quote. So at that meeting, police responded by dragging her out of the meeting and through the streets to the police station where she was arrested. And as planned, because they had done all this groundwork before of like kind of planting the seeds of understanding what the issues were prior to the speech. So the, the public that was there viewed this act as a public silencing of a legitimate protest and it resulted in an increase an increase of press coverage and public sympathy for the cause. So those were just classic civil disobedience tactics. Gandhi used them later and Dr. Martin Luther King and others in, in the American civil rights movement where you provoke the other side to do something, you know, really either egregious or just very obvious to demonstrate how far they're willing to go. And, and then you win the public to your side. Another example is... Um, before a political meeting at St. Andrew's Hall in Glasgow in August of 1909, Alice Paul camped out on the roof of the hall so that she could address the crowd below. And when she was forced by the police to come down from the roof, the crowds rallied to support her. And so when she and her fellow suffragettes attempted to enter the building for the meeting, they were beaten by police and they were taken into custody and the crowds tried to protect the women, and then they gathered outside the police station demanding the women's release. So these tactics were really, really um, effective in getting the public um, to be more aware of their movement and to be on their side. After returning from England to the United States in 1910, Alice Paul earned a PhD in sociology from the University of Pennsylvania. Her dissertation was entitled The Legal Position of Women in Pennsylvania, and it discussed women's suffrage as the key issue of the day. I have to throw in here, reading about Alice Paul, she's probably the most educated woman of her time I have ever heard of. I am so impressed and want to like dig into how she managed to um, become so educated at a time that, that women really did not do that. Um, so impressed. 
And actually now as we're continuing, she later received her law degree after her PhD at the Washington College of Law at American University in 1922. She then earned a master's in law in in 1927 and a doctorate in civil law from American University. So, I mean, even on top of that, I'm just kind of blown away by her. One of Paul's first big projects was initiating and organizing the 1913 women's suffrage procession down Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., the day before President Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. This was designed to put pressure on the future President Wilson because the president would have the most influence over Congress. Over 8,000 people marched, led by Inez Milholland on a white horse. It's a really famous um, parade, and we actually talked about it on a past episode when we were talking about women's suffrage with Anna Howard Shaw. Um, People who were there reported it was just an incredibly inspiring event. However, listeners might also remember this, this, um, an aspect of this parade that we talked about um, on a past episode, that some of the white suffragettes wanted the march to be racially segregated, specifically the Southern women who were joining in the, in the um, effort. And Ida B. Wells, who was um, a really, really involved in the movement and a staunch supporter of suffrage, was told that she shouldn't march with her home state of Illinois because she was black. She was told to march in the back and not to march with her home state. And you might remember from that episode, she marched with them anyway because she was a queen and she would not um, give in to that uh, to that racist policy. So it's really, we have to mention that too, it's a, it's a di- disappointing and really tragic misstep by Alice Paul and other leaders of the the parade that they capitulated and and kind of caved to that pressure from the racist Southern white feminists in in um, segregating the parade rather than standing with their African American sisters who were fighting so ardently alongside them for suffrage. Once suffrage was achieved in 1920. Then Paul and some members of the National Women's Party shifted their attention to the next hurdle, and that was constitutional guarantees of equality through an equal rights amendment, because, of course, the right to vote does not guarantee the right to equal justice under the law, equal access to opportunity, equal education, equal pay for equal work, etc., And so Alice Paul and others um, knew that they would need an amendment to the Constitution. So Alice Paul wrote the Equal Rights Amendment, and she delivered it to Congress in 1923. For 20 years, it did not pass. And in 1943, the amendment was renamed the Alice Paul Amendment. It had been the Lucretia Mott Amendment initially, but they named it after Alice Paul in 1943. And at that point, its wording was changed to the version that still exists today. So, um, Emily, can I have you tell us what that current version is? What does the Equal Rights Amendment actually say? Yeah, absolutely. So the Equal Rights Amendment, as it stands today, says it's 24, 24 words long. It says equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. And it's, it's interesting. It's actually written in three different sections, this amendment. There's that part, which is the meat of it. That's what the amendment says. There's a section two that basically says Congress shall have power to enforce this. Um, and section three, which says this amendment shall take effect two years after the date of ratification. We'll go into that in a minute. Um, and, and a couple little derivatives of this, beginning with the 113th Congress, um, the text to that bill that was introduced in the House of Representatives 
has a slightly different um, text. It says women shall have equal rights in the United States and every place subject to its jurisdiction. And then goes on to say equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. So the addition of that uh, first sentence to specifically name women in the Constitution, um, it's because women are not named at all. Even when we got the right to vote with the 19th Amendment, it doesn't say women. It mentions the word sex. So men men is, you know, is stated often, but, but that is the first time that women is stated. But... Uh, but the ERA really is just those 24 words, 24 words that have caused a big ruckus over the years. Okay, thanks, Emily. So so normally on the podcast, I would say the year that our book was published or the date that a certain article was signed into law. But although we have a date that the text was authored, 1923, as we mentioned at the beginning, we still don't have a ratification date. So this story is still ongoing. So let's dive into the history a little bit. And Kelly, I'm wondering if you can tell us what happened with the Equal Rights Amendment since 1923 when it was authored. The amendment has been introduced in every Congress since it was first presented, and it was presented by Susan B. Anthony's nephew, who was a Republican, and by a future vice president of the U.S., Charles Curtis, in a bipartisan bill. It has faced the same challenges that it faces today. So through, through from 1923 to 1960, it's been blocked in committee and not brought to the floor or it would pass in one house, but not the other. Um, In the 1940s in particular, women were more engaged than ever in this effort. Um, Prominent women in Utah, such as Amy Brown Lyman, who was the eighth General Relief Society president of the LDS Church, and Lucy Grant Cannon, who was president of the Young Women's Association in 1943, they wrote to their senator, Judge Abe Murdoch, asking him to join with the women of the United States in their appeal for equal rights with men and urge your favorable consideration and vote for the Equal Rights Amendment. This just came to light actually last year. This telegram was found by Artis Partial, who's a historian and researcher. She's doing really great work uh, regarding the pandemic and trying to help us understand who we lost during the um, first pandemic back in uh, 1918. Um, So it's crazy that in her research, she just happened to come across this telegram and um, just love to be able to widely share that in the 1940s, um, women in our state were very passionate about this and felt like it was important to carry it forward. There is kind of a perception, though, that things went dark on the ERA, but this idea is really unfounded. Women's groups like the American Association of University Women, founded in 1970, they've been working to pass it since it was written. And it's still part of their efforts today. We count them among our Utah ERA coalition partners. And the ERA has really never lacked the support of tenacious women across our nation. The League of Women Voters took some time to sign on. Initially, they um, until just after the ERA passed Congress in 1974. But once they realized the positive impacts of the amendment for women, they saw First Ladies, Betty Ford, Lady Bird Johnson, Rosalind Carter, they all championed the ERA. And the League reversed their decision, and they've been ardent supporters ever since. 
Just this year, the National League awarded a grant to our League of Women Voters of Utah to support ratification efforts here. And they put together a postcard campaign to our senators and a video detailing Utah's complicated history with passage. It's a very sobering and honest look at why ratification didn't pass when it was proposed here in 1977. And it's really transparent about the role that the LDS Church took. Much like the efforts of Prop 8 that you saw in California, actively working against gay marriage. Where Mormon women had supported fundamental rights in 1940, in the 1970s, they were given callings to oppose it. They were told to speak out against it, and they were even bused to conventions to vote no. A religious committee was formed specifically to stop progress for women. Many of the women who work for the ERA today have mothers that were told to actively oppose it in the 1970s. That's amazing. Can I ask like a clarifying question? You mentioned that women were getting callings like in their local congregations, like they were giving church assignments or they were given church assignments to like organize against the ERA, like as an as a spiritual slash ecclesiastical assignment. Absolutely. They were organizing in groups um, in relief societies and and in congregations to actively oppose it. A terrific book that you could read about this history is the autobiography of Sonia Johnson. It's called From Housewife to Heretic. And she details in in specific terms things that took place during that time period. She was part of a group called Mormons for ERA. She was in the leadership of that group. And they were advocating strongly in support of the Equal Rights Amendment um, until she was excommunicated. And an interesting story about her is that she played the organ in her ward. uh, And the... The day before her excommunication, she was in church up at the organ with her Mormons for ERA badge on. But she also says down in the congregation were women wearing stop ERA badges. Oh, man, that's so hard. Um, Having been in California during Prop 8, I think I do have a little bit of an idea of what that might have felt like, the contention between people and how hard that can be in communities. But um I thank you for that recommendation of that book. I'd recommend to listeners to get it. I'm definitely going to look at it after this. So my next question is, what happened kind of more broadly in the United States um, in the 1960s and 70s? I just watched Mrs. America, which I learned a lot from. I thought it was a fantastic series um, about the ERA. And it talks more about like Phyllis Schlafly versus the women's libbers. So could you tell us a little bit about that? You bet. The aim of Phyllis Schlafly was really to preserve a traditional role for women. Even as she herself worked outside the home as an attorney, she was a contradiction in terms in a lot of ways. She would bring eagle form propaganda attached to baked goods to the legislators to highlight her role as a homemaker, even though she didn't fit that traditional mold herself. Um, She really capitalized on a fear during that time period of change that was brought on because of progressive equal rights movements um, during that it was a time period of the civil rights. And with a, a large group of people, her ideas really did resonate. She effectively said women want to remain on the pedestal in the gilded cage and be protected. Making claims about social security, a child custody that really had no basis. She fed misinformation and fear mongering about what the amendment might do. 
we actually hear many of these arguments still being made today. In fact, a few months ago, we hosted a debate between Senator Reby, who ran the bill last this past year, and the Eagle Forum here in Utah that formed under Schlafly. The current president, Gail Ruzica, said straight out, women don't want equal pay. Women don't want to be equal. And I, I was shocked. I had to check my watch to make sure that I wasn't back in the 1930s. <laughs> totally. What in the world? I can't believe that the Eagle Forum still exists and that these conversations are, st are still happening. This is blowing my mind. So Phyllis Schlafly was actually a genius when you're looking at political figures throughout history and absolutely deserves the credit for that. Um, a lot of that was she identified this kind of need in the marketplace, right? She aspired to some political power and to some um, um, just fame, I guess. And she did a great job because she came in and said, hey, here's this opening in, in this political arena where I can show you know, mostly, almost exclusively men in Congress, hey, let me just give you this to lean on. Let me give you permission to say that women don't want this. Women don't mm -hmm. want equality, which not only gives you some, you know, um, it gives you some flexibility in protecting your position. So it, it allowed these men who had power to say, hey, it's not me saying that I don't want women to be equal. There's a woman saying. So it's kind of the perfect scapegoat for men. And when you think of, you know, I, I tend to be a little bit of an optimist in these things, like looking back historically and saying, I don't actually think most of these men were like, ew, women can't stand them. How dare they want power? There were probably some of them that felt that way, but the majority, no, I don't think so. I think the majority of them were kind of like, well, gosh, I don't want to step on the toes of women. If I have a woman in my office bringing me cookies and saying, golly gee, please don't take away my position in my home. I'm going to listen because I don't know. I'm not a woman. I'm not an expert. Mm -hmm. I'm going to kind of take. And for these men who were in Congress that are making these decisions, it puts them in a super interesting position because they have Phyllis Schlafly, who probably looks more like their wives, right? She's a good entertainer. She knows how to chat with people. She has like those, is socially gifted. And then you have um, what we consider the more liberal side of this that really seemed like these men were probably not married to women who were burning their bras and mm -hmm. shaking their fists. And that's the image that Phyllis Schlafly helped create around the women's movement and that the media created, you know, the media is going to glomp onto like, what is the most entertaining thing here? Mm -hmm. Well, they're not looking at me and you, we're kind of boring and vanilla, right? They're looking at people who are really taking this to an extreme. Um, and that happens to us today. That happens mm -hmm. to all of us, right? the majority of the women's movement were probably like people listening to this podcast um, where you're kind of like, Oh no, I love it. I actually love being a mom. It's a fabulous experience. You know, I've spent time in the home. It's lovely. I, I, I feel really grateful that I've gotten to do that. I'm in a traditional marriage. It's great. Um, but the reality is I care about these things. And, and so I think that we need to give Schlafly the recognition she deserves, which is she glomped onto this. She did a good job of incorporating religion because the second you tie something to anybody's religion, right? Like um, it, it, in America, it was these Christian religions that she really tapped into and said, hey, if you're truly a religious woman, 
then you're going to agree that you don't want equality. That's maybe not how God wanted it or, you know, like these different arguments around that, which I know we'll get into in a minute. But but the reality is a woman will typically protect her religion to her death. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like a, it's, it's a really beautiful quality that women have a lot of times, you know, is that they're protective of their religion and their higher belief system, whatever it is. And so she knew that she was no dummy. She, she didn't trip upon this and whether or not every single move Schlaff we made was, um, was thought about and was strategized around. Some of them were, some of them, she just used her natural talent to kind of mm -hmm. figure it out and, and get there. But I just wanted to point out that fact that that 1960s, 70s really did a number on equality for women. And it's because we had a very shiny figure come in, a shiny political figure come in claiming to be a you know, a, a woman who wanted traditional things, but doing the opposite, like Kelly pointed out. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering what were some of the counter arguments that she and others were um, making at the time and why were they effective? They were really effective at slowing down the progress that was being made. One of the arguments was it would take women out of the home to work and thus destroy the traditional family. And that was a very powerful argument at the time. Women were already working, though, outside the home. And in fact, younger women especially were joining in the workforce. And if you think about it, with that addition, they needed workplace protections more than they had ever before. But I do think for the older generation, they had just come through the civil rights movement. Um, they were looking to settle things down. There was a real tussle between authority and authority figures and respect for authority. If you think about the Vietnam War, um, this was a pretty tumultuous time period. And uh, younger people particularly were very invested in the Equal Rights Amendment. And in some ways, it ended up becoming a generational issue as well. Um, another argument was that it would bring about gay marriage, something that has happened due to societal shifts in the last decade, but all happened without the Equal Rights Amendment. Another argument was that the ERA would legalize abortion. But we do know that abortion became law in 1973 because women were dying from unsafe procedures. The Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade under medical privacy law and not due to equal rights law. So even you might have proponents of the Equal Rights Amendment wanting to talk more about the connections to abortion, not just people that oppose, but people that support. And I think it's really important to recognize that that's that abortion is settled law and it's not related to the Equal Rights Amendment. The fourth argument was that the under the ERA, able-bodied women could be drafted to serve our country. And this was the only argument that really had any merit back in the 1970s. However, the issue has become more moot over time for a couple of reasons. One is that we don't staff wars like we used to. We've done away with the draft. We recruit volunteers. And it's unlikely that we would ever reinstate the draft. But if we did, under the Equal Rights Amendment, women would step up to protect our country. We also don't fight wars like we used to. So we increasingly wage war remotely and with technology, drone technology, for example. Another reason is that the all-male draft has already been declared unconstitutional in a Texas court in 2019. That decision caused the Pentagon Selection Service to reevaluate their programs. And so those changes are happening without the ERA. 
Interestingly, in that case, men were able to use their standing in the Constitution as part of their argument, something that women on the other side of it could not do because we do not have standing in the Constitution until the ERA is passed. Women have always served during the war and have always been able to be drafted. I think I don't know if a lot of people realize this, but our Constitution doesn't differentiate between men and women when it talks about drafting armies. We nearly did draft women in World War II. And I think probably the most important argument in regards to this service in the armed forces is that women are currently serving in every arm of the armed forces, in every capacity. What they lack is protection under the law for advancement and protection against sexual violence. You see that with the conversation happening now around the murders in Fort Hood, Mm -hmm. um, particularly of Vanessa Golan. Golan had reported sexual harassment and her claims were ignored by the chain of command, which resulted in her death. These women and men who serve our country, they deserve every protection that we can offer, including equal protection under the law. Hmm. Absolutely. Thanks for bringing that up. I actually was remembering, too, um, when Pete Buttigieg was running for president, when he kind of floated that idea of mandatory military service like they do in Israel. Um, And I remember one conversation where um, someone brought up that it might make, you know, kind of these old school military general types who are a, a little bit trigger happy about getting involved in wars, that, you know, that kind of paternalistic patriarchal mindset might actually make them think twice if they knew they were sending their daughters to die in war. And um, in this conversation, someone else brought up the point too, like, and why wouldn't they be feeling that way about their sons too and sending their sons to war? And so, one thing that another that my daughter Lucy actually brought up in another episode is that the questions to be asking maybe are like, why are we sending our children to die in war? It, it's it's not necessarily the gendered question about like, why would we send our daughters? We shouldn't be sending our sons to die in war so easily and so cavalierly anyway. Um, but like you said, I love like those who choose to volunteer and choose to protect our country when they um, when there is a need for that should be honored and respected and and women aren't they 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 are not protected and so that's su- such great points Emily did you have something that you wanted to add yeah I just wanted to add on quickly I'll piggyback on what you just said Amy um you know one of those interesting things about that argument around war because I've gotten into this quite a bit with different people about women in the military that that seems to be the standby a lot of the other things that Kelly mentioned like abortion um well that's still a big care for people but um shared bathrooms gay marriage, the ruining of the traditional family by allowing women in the workforce, some of those other fears that they'd attached to ERA in the 60s and 70s have kind of gone away because they've already come to pass and and the ERA is non-existent. Mm-hmm. The women in the military is one that today I encounter quite a bit when I talk to people, you know, friends and great people who are against ERA. They, they do, they talk about this women in the military. And one of my thoughts around that, like you said, I know more I want to send my son than my daughter. That's for sure. Um, but the other piece of that is what if, what if we had women's minds in the military? What if women were making these international decisions mm. about peace and war? You know, like if we can, if, if women were a part of those conversations, my guess, and I don't have any research surrounding this, but my guess is that we would be looking for alternatives to war 
much more often because that is just in a very gendered way, typically how we deal with problems and solutions, you know, is that as women, we're looking for ways to avoid violence, to avoid um, those conflicts, to to fix things in other ways. So I think it's actually like elevating the conversation and helping people understand, listen, when women are a part of this, just like we're seeing in corporations, there was a time when we said, listen, women should not be in the workforce. They're going to be damaged. We're, you know, they don't know how to perform the kind of duties in the workforce. Well, now we see from actual data that, that when women are part of um, executive teams, those companies do better. And now you've got all these executive teams at major companies saying, oh, gosh, we're looking for women executives. Why can't we find them? Well, give us like 50 years. We got to catch up. Right. <laughs> um, and and that same thing with with um, my thought would be with the army, with the role of military, actually, in the world is the more women we get into those executive meetings, at, you know, um, at, at that executive level within the army, the way the world works, the way the international conflict works actually changes. And so there will be less drafting to be had because we have the way that women think incorporated into that. Powerful. Thanks, Emily. Okay, my next question is about the role of religion, because I know that Schlafly was Catholic. And as you mentioned before, you know, we we know that other conservative religions, including our common religion, um, opposed the ERA in the 1970s. And I just read that the LDS Church recently released a statement that they still do oppose it. So what reasons do they give for opposing it? And how do you refute those points when you talk to people who, you know, are members of these conservative religions? Well, I will take this if you don't mind. (laughs) I mentioned this above that I was raised LDS and my dad was a professor at BYU it's a church school. My sister actually left our religion when Sonia Johnson was excommunicated for her support of equal rights. So in our household, the ERA was a taboo topic. And it wasn't until I went to college and I really looked up the words that I was really surprised to see that it wasn't what I thought it was. I I really thought that's it. <laughs> the wording is really simple. The ideas are fundamental that women deserve to be legally protected in our founding document, the U.S. Constitution. We have already similar wording in our state constitution here in Utah. It's been there since 1895 that women's civic and political rights shall not be denied or abridged on account of sex. That's the exact wording. So it's almost almost mirrors exactly the Equal Rights Amendment. And we've had it since we won statehood. That's really all that women are asking for. But some are really not ready for women to be fully equal, particularly in religious life, where men do make decisions for women, where women are still being taught to obey their husbands. Since correlation in my religion, men retain the final decision-making over budgets and programs that women lead. Can patriarchy and women's equality exist in the same space? I think that's a really great question, and it's one that we're still grappling with here in Utah. I believe firmly, though, that spirituality and equality can coexist very well. How do I personally reconcile that my religion doesn't support women's equal protections in our founding document? I struggle. I, it's precisely because of my spiritual upbringing that I am working for equality. My faith really does inform my support of the ERA. Ideas of fairness. I was taught ideas about the golden rule. And really a belief that women have individual worth and that we should work to lift each other up and respect women. 
this amendment is in line with those principles that I was taught. And we are all alike unto God. I welcome a chance to have this conversation with church leaders about this amendment and describe what this amendment could mean for women now, what it could mean for women who are struggling, women who have faced economic hardship, women who have been mistreated. I will sit down and talk with anyone. And if given the chance, I would ask them to really reevaluate and retire the arguments of yesteryear and look at ERA with new eyes. All my life, I was taught from the pulpit that we must study an issue out in our minds and vote our conscience and that our church wants us to vote, but will not tell us how to vote. But is that true here with this issue? The founding fathers wanted that separation of church and state, and we believe that they were divinely inspired. Interestingly, after four years of declining to comment about it, saying unofficially that they were neutral on the topic, they did come out with a statement on the very same day that Representative Karen Kwan announced our bill in 2019. There was tremendous support for the ERA that was uh, growing. More than 70% of Utahns supported it based on two independent polls. So the press kept pushing. And finally, the church spokesman did issue a statement. But if you listen to what they actually said, they said that they haven't reevaluated their opposition from the 70s. 40 plus years. That's my lifetime. And considering that the main arguments of the 70s in the 70s against ratification are moot and really have come about without the ERA, I really see that as having some wiggle room. I think the church wants to do better for women. It's time to reevaluate those positions. It's overdue. If you look at the church's website, you'll see only the articles from the 1970s. No real new information. So let's Let's take that look. Let's look at the ERA with new eyes, given what we know now and given what we want the next generation. We want them to have every opportunity open to them. The ERA doesn't just protect women. It's for men, too. And as certain industries increase their numbers of women employees, men may find that they need these workplace protections just as much to make sure that they are paid as they should be and have equal advancement opportunities. Yeah, when you think about religions and how they've kind of aligned, I think that religion generally tries to stick with what they're doing, which is religion. It's not, you know, running the government, but it's it's hard. It's hard to stay out of some of these issues, especially when you have, you know, pretty thick traditions and ideas. And um, I think, again, a lot of this is practical. And there was, if you read... Melinda Gates' book, Moment of Lift, there's this beautiful moment. Melinda Gates is a strong Catholic woman, identifies as a strong Catholic woman, was born, raised, strong Catholic woman, you know. And she mentions her work in um, the most poverty-stricken areas on this planet, right? Like extreme, extreme poverty. And she talks about kind of discovering that they realize one of the root issues of extreme poverty is the lack of contraception, birth control. Right. And so these women start having giving birth at age 13, give birth till they're 42, have 18 kids, can't feed themselves, you know, and this just exacerbates the problem. And she happens to be in a religion that does not believe in birth control. Right. That's kind of against their religious belief system. And and she talks a little bit about kind of trying to find this um uh, trying to find a place in there for herself. Like, how can I be the strong Catholic woman 
But also I know if this doesn't change and if this, if we don't start helping these women gain access to contraception, this poverty doesn't change. And, and this cycle continues and repeats and, and all these things. And, you know, I don't know, I would love to have a conversation with her about how she really did um, kind of come to the right place for herself in that. But I think for me, you know, I'm a religious woman and I, I you know, I have a belief system and, and I think that part of that is saying, I can live with some of these, like a nuanced life. I can live and say, no, I know this is right. And I'm not willing to give this up because I can feel it inside of me, you know, and, and, and that these things can coexist at the same time. I also think, you know, for religions, frankly, for anyone listening to this podcast, we need people, we need women who are strong and believe in equality to stay inside of religions because that's how things change, right? Is when, when a membership when a belief system has changed so thoroughly within a membership that, that, you know, eventually a religion changes. So um, that's just a thought I had about this. Awesome. Thanks, Emily. Um, okay. So to go back to the history in um, the, like the sixties and seventies, what has been happening since the ERA had kind of like this big defeat on the the Congress floor in the 1970s. What's been happening since then? Well, I'm going to push back a little bit on the word defeat because we are not, <laughs> we are not defeated now. Um, but when the ERA fell three states short in 1979, they petitioned Congress to extend the timeline three more years until 1982. Congress has the power to extend and even remove the arbitrary timeline. The OLC opinion issued under the Carter administration back in the 1970s said that the timeline could be extended if Congress agreed, and that is what happened. So timelines for amendments aren't mentioned in the Constitution. Some amendments have them, and some don't. Madison was the first amendment, and it took 203 years to be fully ratified. It didn't have a timeline, and some of them don't. Congress has all the power here, so with amendments, Congress can really do whatever it wants. It's not bound by what another Congress has done. So, you know, in legal terminology, sometimes you have to rely on precedent. So what was done before you have to do, that's not true with amendments. So this Congress right now can do whatever it would like to in terms of the timeline. And, and in fact, there are efforts to remove it. So why did it stall? Well, this is where Eleanor, Eleanor Schmiel and Gloria Steinem, who are still working for women's equality, they really contradict the depictions of Mrs. America, the documentary. Hmm. They suggest that the insurance companies realized that if women were equal, if women were working in greater numbers, they would have to insure them too. And so there were cultural reservations, obviously, from Phyllis Schlafly, and, and Emily said it very well, that, that in some ways those efforts were really genius. But they weren't the only consideration. There was a powerful financial incentive not to advance the ERA. Those same women's groups that were active prior to passage, they really kept working on it during this time period. They didn't stall. In Florida, in South Carolina, in Illinois, women never put it down. In the early 1990s, the main women's groups that were involved, including the National Organization of Women, met and voted on how to go forward. One idea was the three-state approach. Another idea was the start over ERA, and that would have explicitly included all women with no exceptions. And they were both talked about and debated, and ultimately the three-state approach won the vote. 
So we were so close to being done in that it was decided we would finish what we had started. And so the work continued until 2017 when a phenomenal black gay woman, a veteran who worked for the Pentagon, Nevada Senator Pat Spearman, and my personal Shiro, <laughs> sponsored mm -hmm. and won ratification in Nevada. And the next year, a white male pro-life Republican, Steve Anderson, passed the ERA in a very tight vote in Illinois. Why did he run the ERA? Because the Eagle Forum gave him a flyer. And as an attorney, he went through it and he, he knew that they were saying things about the ERA that were just were not factual, that were not legal facts. And it made him really angry. It fueled his passion, ignited his passion. He really wanted to fix that, that misinformation. And, and then in 2020, Virginia became the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. And there was, that was a Herculean effort. They had to flip their entire state to blue in order to make that happen. But they did make history for women that day. In Utah, our efforts really formally revived in 2016. So we were watching what Nevada was doing, one of our neighboring states. And we, we had an amazing march, the largest group protest at the Capitol that we have ever had during the Women's March in a snowstorm. So if picture this, you know, over 10,000 women marching up uh, a steep incline up to the Capitol building in a snowstorm um, to advocate for the Equal Rights Amendment. Senator DeBacchus is the one that, that helped us to run that bill. And we've been working every year since then. Our most recent sponsors, Senator Reby and Representative Kwan, have both said we're not going away. Women are not going to stop working for equality. Okay, and I was just reading about something important that happened a couple of months ago in March 2021. I think this was about the timeline that the ERA needed to be passed. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. In March, a judge ruled on a case that's before the D.C. courts. It actually originated in Alabama, but then was moved to D.C. The case was brought by the attorney generals in the three states who have ratified after the arbitrary timeline on the ERA had passed. The case wasn't about the merits of the ERA, although it does mention some of them. It was really only on amendment procedure. And really, amendments are a funny beast. They're really rare, and we intend for them to be rare. We really don't want our Constitution to be changed willy-nilly, and so we support that we only pass amendments when something has broad legal necessity, and that's a legal term. So if they consider that an issue has this broad necessity for a wide swath of the country, like the ERA has for women, then, then it's worthy of an amendment. So consequently, when we do get to 38 states on an amendment, so once it's passed both houses of Congress and then 38 states ratify it, the procedure is that the amendment is immediately ratified and signed into law because of that sense of necessity. The archivist really has a secretarial role in this he takes the ratifications and he signs them. It's what he did for Nevada and Illinois, but he stopped short on Virginia. He hesitated and he decided mm -hmm. to ask Bill Barr in the Trump Justice Department to offer another decision from the OLC. That's the Office of Legal Counsel. This one effectively replaced the Carter administration OLC, the one that had extended the deadline. And though it's not legally binding, it represents a legal opinion with some persuasion. And so the archivist, Ferriero, 
did not certify the ERA when it reached 38 states, like Article 5 of the Constitution requires. Hence the lawsuit asking that he be compelled to sign. And the decision came down in March on that case that the attorney generals did not have legal standing to bring this suit because they were outside of that timeline. Something that they are now have just announced in the last few weeks that they will appeal. This didn't get as much press, but the judge also threw the case back to Congress in his written opinion. He knew that a bill to remove the timeline was already passed in the House. Representative John Curtis from Utah was one of only four Republicans to stand with women and vote to remove the timeline. And a similar bill, SJR1, is currently waiting to be heard in the Senate. We have 52 senators right now, including Republicans who have signed on, but we need seven more to clear the path for women. When we talk about the timeline, too, we will sometimes say that the timeline is arbitrary for a few reasons. It's really not part of the official language of the amendment. If you recall, when Emily mentioned it, she said there are a couple of additional pieces that were added after. So that is part of the argument for why um, the timeline could be removed altogether. It was added as an addendum. It was meant to add pressure and even really stop women from completing it by putting a constraint, a time constraint on it. But the fact that Congress has extended the timeline before demonstrates that it can do it again and even remove the timeline altogether, which is what is happening in Congress right now. Okay, good. That's really helpful to understand that. Okay, so another question I have, I guess, and we've touched on this a little bit, but I just want to ask, like, really clearly, what would you say to people who ask just the simple question, why is the ERA necessary? And actually, even for myself, um, before you answer that, I'll say that we just did an episode a few weeks ago on the podcast um, on the 1964 Civil Rights Amendment, which Polly Murray and Mary Eastwood, and then later even Ruth Bader Ginsburg, argued um, included women, that, you know, the Civil Rights Amendment included um, discrimination on the basis of sex. So why um, do we need a separate amendment? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a very valid question and one that we get constantly because a lot of people, um, and you alluded to this at the beginning of the episode, Amy, where you said a lot of people don't know this is past. You talked about your experience finding out, oh, ERA, I would have thought that that had been ratified. Right. Um, the majority of Americans think that it has been ratified. And a lot of women you'll hear say, well, I feel equal. You know, I, <laughs> I feel equal. So it's weird that I'm not. Like, what makes us not equal? There have been a lot of laws and policies put in place um, to help women gain equality, right? There are a lot of those things that exist in the United States. That said, every single one of those is changeable. You can alter any law, any legislative session, congressional session. It doesn't. Any law can be altered except for the Constitution, right? So once something exists in the Constitution of the United States, it is there permanently. So um, unless it's, you know, amended, which is a massive process as we're seeing with this amendment. But the, the reason that we need this, the Equal Rights Amendment, is because it would be a permanent protection for winter, for women. And right now this gets really, really nitty gritty. So if you have a lot of attorneys listening or um, people in the judicial system, they're going to get this, but it's, it's a little confusing. Otherwise, what it actually changes in the law is the type of judicial scrutiny that's used. So when a court is determining the outcome of a case, um, uh, things like national origin, race, and religion are looked at with strict scrutiny. 
So the way that they're, it's decided is, okay, these are things we just don't even mess with, you know, um, national origin, race, and religion. Um, that's because there's a constitutional amendment that protects those things. Now, what we're asking is this would include gender in that. This would include, you know, if if you if this is a gendered case, if the if the case is a gender case, we want it to be looked at at a strict scrutiny. Right now, it's looked at at intermediate scrutiny. So that's really into the weeds there, but that's what it's about. Perfect. Um, do you mind if I add a little there as well? Please do. Please do. When we think about the laws that we have, we're so grateful for what we have, but we also know that we can lose those protections. As Emily talked about, we've seen it happen. One of our most recent groups to partner with us is a newly formed cosmetology organization in Utah. It's called the Utah Beauty Association. And last session, lawmakers put through a bill to deregulate their industry in a field that is mostly women who have invested sometimes 20000 in education and years of study and experience. To have the bill pass means that they lose credibility, they lose their investment that they've made, and there's a real threat to public safety as less qualified people now have access. The Utah Nurses Association joined us due to a similar issue. Though 90% of nurses in Utah are women, current studies show that men in the industry are making more than women do. And doctors, who are still predominantly men in Utah, have outsized governance over what qualified nurses can do. One bill in the last session was about pain clinics and essentially forces nurses, when they are setting up their own pain clinics, to pay for a doctor on call, even if they never need him. Even if, if they are the ones actually doing the work, they have to, to make that added financial investment in order to open their business. Wow. So you can see those two cases show you that the ERA is fundamental. It's essential. And, and the way it works is it acts like a filter for federal laws to pass through before they become law. So that's one of the ways, that's one of the key ways that it will change our laws. Um, it has the potential also, though, to bolster existing laws that protect women. So they can't be walked back. They can't be watered down like employment laws have been. And when women go to court on the basis of sexual discrimination, that added layer that Emily mentioned of protection, that strict scrutiny piece, right now the courts use that kind of a workaround. Mm -hmm. And it's called intermediate scrutiny in those cases. And with the ERA, women would be that protected class. And they would have to use that heightened level of consideration in those cases. If you want to say it really simply, women would be more likely to find justice for clear cases of sex discrimination. Yeah, that's so clear and so simple. And you would think it, it would be hard pressed to even think of an argument against that. But I'm sure you get so many arguments against it all the time. One thing that keeps coming up um, for me when I mention it is uh, people who are say that um, there's kind of this nebulous fear of quote unquote, unintended consequences, that if it passes, there will be things that like that we can't even really think about that might be a, a consequence of this. So how would you answer that? Yeah, I think uh, if any of these people are familiar with policy generally, welcome to the game. That is how it is. They're always so I, I think the way that we answer that question typically is by saying, Every single time we push a piece of policy through, it doesn't matter if it's putting a traffic light at your neighborhood <laughs> corner. It doesn't matter if it's, hey, let's bring this new 
textbook in as a school board, we're going to vote to bring this textbook. You know, it, it doesn't matter if it's like, we're going to reform healthcare. Every single one of those policies at every single level of policy has unintended consequences. You know, I did read something that said seatbelt laws actually increase pedestrian deaths. You know, it's like, well, dang, didn't see that one coming. But the reality is there will be some unintended consequences. But the reason that we implement any policy is because we believe that policy has, there's greater reason to implement that policy than to exclude that policy, right? Like, and and so I think that this is a very fear-driven thought. And I, I believe the reality with the ERA is actually that the history is so dang long. Like if this came up this year, you cannot tell me this would not just get done, yeah. right? Like yeah. equality, yeah, oh yeah. And, and even the way the 24 words that are the amendment, they're, they make perfect sense. There isn't, there actually isn't that much room for misinterpretation it just says hey the law is going to be applied equally regardless of sex that's all it says Mm -hmm. i I do believe that we in america want the law to be applied equally regardless of sex so i think if this came up today it would kind of sail through i may be oversimplifying it but my gosh we're dealing with almost 100 years of history and people just cannot get their minds around it but the reality is equality is more important that is more important and and the fears of the unintended consequences of the past those have most of those have come to pass without this amendment so it's time to move on and get this done yeah yeah, to your point, and you had mentioned that before too. I have to just mention this really quick. At CrossFit this morning, actually, before we recorded this episode, I was just running into the restroom, the genderless bathroom at the CrossFit. And just, I kind of chuckled to myself because I was like lifting heavy weights in a group of men and women together, like super masculine workout. And I'm, you know, running into the genderless bathroom and I came back out and one of the, um, regulars that cross at the CrossFit gym, this super strong masculine dude. And he had brought his baby to CrossFit this morning and he had a little gate around the baby. And then when the baby was kind of fuzzy, he picked him up and did his squats with the baby. And I just thought we're already living in Phyllis Schlafly's nightmare. Like <laughs> this, the, just these fully actualized adults doing these things that are like, no, no, that's masculine. No, no, that's feminine. And And that like, really, I think that genderless bathroom thing was a huge fear back then too, from what I've read. And um, it's just so funny. Right. It is funny. And I think um, it's a good, that's a great example to bring up with people because, because you lifted heavy weights this morning and went into a genderless bathroom. Do you want to be a man? (laughs) Probably not. Like you're probably still, you know, and if, and if you do want to be a man, it's for other reasons. It's not because you lifted heavy weights this morning and because you went into a genderless bathroom. Right. right? So it doesn't, I think that there's this fear, you know, it's like dogs will be cats, cats will be dogs, you know, we just, all mayhem's going to break loose. It's like, no, 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 no. I can go to work and have children and love my children and take care of my children, you know, and I, these things are not mutually exclusive and it's just, society growing up and as you say so eloquently breaking down patriarchy yeah. and understanding these things about it. Oh, I love that. And and yeah, and as you guys pointed out, these these societal steps have happened even though the ERA didn't pass. So that was not a um a legitimate fear actually. It's gonna move forward either way. It wasn't connected to the ERA, it turns out. 
Did Amy, you raise your hand? Yes, go ahead. Yeah, let me just add a little piece onto that. One thing people don't realize is that that efforts around L- LGBTQ rights are progressing already. Um, so there, mm-hmm. last year, there was a, a really profound case, Bostock versus Clayton County, that was decided that essentially said, we're going to protect LGBTQ folks in the workplace. So against workplace discrimination. And and so some of these laws are advancing already. And the Equal Rights Amendment, when it is fully certified, will still require, based on the language, two years before it can start to take effect in law. Mm. And so so I think some of those fears are unfounded because mm-hmm. some of those societal shifts are happening and they're happening right now and they're going to get there probably mm-hmm. before the Equal Rights Amendment is fully certified. Hmm. How interesting. Okay. Another a quick question is just which states still haven't ratified the ERA? Yeah, they're, um, I'm just going to listen. Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, North Carolina, Oklahoma, South Carolina, and Utah. Um, Within the last few years, uh, Illinois, Nevada, and Virginia had ratified. So you'll see a pattern with most of these states. They're uh, kind of those highly religious states, the South Mm -hmm. and, and parts of the West. Or is it better to focus on national efforts? We do still need Utah to ratify because our ratification requires a bipartisan effort. So I mentioned before that when Virginia passed, it was because they had really flipped their state to blue. But here in Utah, I think it would be so profound if if our ratification went through because it would require both more conservative and, and progressive folks to, to come together. And we know that this is a really important moment in history where we're asking people to really bring these important issues to the table and unify and, and really talk through the issues, be willing to listen to multiple perspectives on these issues. And for Utah to ratify would make a profound impact. We have a rich history around women in our state. So there are these amazing pioneering women. This last year, we've been celebrating many of their efforts. We really had to win the vote twice here. And this ratifying here would really send a powerful message that our state respects and supports women now. Also, if DC becomes a state, we would need one more state to ratify to meet the requirements of Article 5. It states Mm -hmm. that an amendment has to be ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the states and the addition of D.C. for statehood would mean that we need one more. OK, so my last question is, what can we do to support the ERA, whether we live in states that have ratified it already or states like in Utah that haven't ratified the ERA? What can we do? You know, the biggest thing is there is a national organization called the ERA Coalition at ERAcoalition.org. This national organization does a really good job of kind of keeping tabs on what's going on in all the states that have not ratified and also moving forward. So there are these two elements, states that have not yet ratified, there's work to do in those, but there's also work at a national level with some lawsuits and things that we mentioned earlier in the show. So if you're interested in becoming involved, the best thing would be to get on and check out what they're doing. They have weekly calls that you can join and then volunteer either at the national level or at a state level, if you live in one of those states, there's probably an organization working on this within your state, and that would be a good place to find it. Um, the other thing is you can support 
other states that have not ratified by getting involved in the organizations there. And this is really a legislative game, as we talk about a lot here in the state of Utah. It's reaching out to your legislature. It's helping them know that people still care about this and really working with whatever relationships you have there to get them to understand the issue more fully and not just kind of buy into the propaganda machine from the 1970s. Yeah. Well, Emily and Kelly, thank you so much for being here today. I have learned so much from you. I think um, this is such an important topic, and I'm just super grateful for your insights and wisdom. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for all the great work you're doing. We appreciate your work as well. Thank you for having us. And listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I want to just end with an action item as well. If you want to join in the effort for any listeners um, in Utah who live in the state of Utah, you can find the Utah ERA Coalition at www.utahericoalition.org. They are on Facebook. They are on Instagram and Twitter. Their account is at ERA Utah. Um, also look for educational TikToks coming soon. That and you can find those at, at ERA Utah Gal. And then for the national and local effort, um, we can reach out to Senator Lee and Senator Romney and tell them that we want them to vote yes on SJR1 to remove the timeline for the ERA. Emily and Kelly say ask for an in-person meeting and that they will come with you to talk to Senator Lee or Senator Romney. Again, I feel this issue is so important. It's not a partisan issue. It's not controversial. It's fundamental. Um, And it will take all of us working together to get it over the finish line. So I'm super excited to be a part of this. This is something that I'm definitely going to be participating in. On our next episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will be discussing the book Sexual Politics by Kate Millett. If you've heard of radical feminism from the 1970s, this is one of the defining texts of radical feminism. It's a really, really dense academic text. Um, It identifies misogyny in literature in a way that no one had really done before. And I have to warn listeners, kind of a content warning, the very first chapter of the book, I was shocked a little bit because it opens with very long quoted passages of a really famous book that I had never heard of before, but it's uh, like 100% misogynistic porn. Um, So it isn't a book that I would necessarily recommend owning, to be honest, or even reading cover to cover. Um, I did not enjoy the way the book started. Um, It was quite shocking for me and um, disturbing. But after... um, after those chapters, that those opening passages, I kind of revived myself with some smelling salts. <laughs> and um, then I saw where Millet was going and what she was doing. And, and it really is a work of genius. Um, her criticism of the sexism in literature paved the way for feminist literary criticism. So it's a really, really important landmark text. It helped me understand what um, kind of 
more about what radical feminism was, what it was advocating, and why there was so much pushback against it and still is. So it's an important work. I don't necessarily recommend buying and reading it, to be honest, but um, I do recommend learning about it. And so we will be discussing the text um, with actually a, a feminist legend. I'm so excited to discuss this text with Maxine Hanks next week. So you won't want to miss the, the discussion of Sexual Politics by Kate Millett next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Mm-hmm.